0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This was the book I've been waiting for. I always read about flow, this amazing experience you get when you're doing something you're passionate about and you get in this altered state of consciousness where you're amazingly productive and you enjoy it so much. It's like it's almost like this runner's high of any activity. I hear all and read about flow, but I'm always confused. How does one get into this state of flow? Finally, a great book that describes it, Stephen Kotler has been studying this, I feel like for decades, and his new book, The Art of Impossible, describes every detail, every question I ever had about flow and how to get into that state no matter what I'm doing. I even asked Stephen some surprising for me questions about a certain state I wanted to get particularly in flow in. But anyway, here's the interview with Stephen. Stephen Kotler, The Art of Impossible. Steve, this is the book I have been waiting for you to I love all your books, but this is the book I feel like I've been asking you every single podcast you've been on, like all seven of them, when are you going to write this book? And you wrote it. This is the book, The Art of Impossible, A Peak Performance Primer. Thank you. Yeah, I think
1: this is the book everybody's been wanting me to write, they wanted me to write this book after I wrote West to Jesus, my very first book on like the talked about flow at all, definitely after Rise of Superman. And honest to God, I would have loved to accommodate all of you, but like the a lot of the science that's underneath that book didn't actually start appearing in the real world until the past couple of years. Neuroscience had to really advance a while and I had to get a hell of a lot smarter about this stuff, I think, to write that book. And I had to, you know, we train about a thousand people a month at the collective, so there's, it's probably 100,000 people in total that I helped train.
0: What do you train people to do?
1: To get into flow, peak performance. I mean, we start, we follow the exact blueprint you're holding in your hand. We start with motivation and goals, then we go into flow training, then we layer in grit, and then accelerated learning and creativity. Because, as you know from the book, my argument is that peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And it's a limited suite, right? Our biology only amplifies certain things. Those are the things you want to work on, essentially.
0: I remember with the rise of Superman, you were talking about a lot of experiences of flow with extreme athletes, like like mountain climbing or some kind of mountain climbing where you don't use ropes. Surfing, yeah, I was, using,
1: I was using the 1990s in action sports as an illustration of what flow made possible. And maybe I did a disservice to people because I, you know, action sports are great stories. They're amazing stories. Yeah. They're well worth telling. And I love the fact that I got a chance to tell them. That said, people spend about 5% of their work life in flow on average, often without noticing it. And flow is most common in studies among middle managers in corporations. Like that's one of the most common flow states in the world coders and flow wrote the internet video gamers and flow built the video game industry pretty much everything that's in silicon valley requires flow to do well so flow shows up pretty much everywhere you know i spend a lot of time on wall street because flow massively applies to finance and things along those lines and of course you know the action sport athletes and 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 take your pick but i you know it's it's everybody is hardwired for flow it's universe it's how evolution shaped us to perform at our best so, we can all get into the zone. The athletes were a great example of what flow makes possible. But the downside is that people read that book and go, wow, this is just for action sport athletes. I'm an accountant. And no, 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 that's not the point. The point is that flow is for everybody. We're all hardwired for this.
0: And to summarize flow in one sentence, it's this neural state where you're so focused on your activity that not only does your happiness level go up, but your performance level is like a 4X, it's like a 5X.
1: So the technical scientific definition is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. So you exactly nailed it. You feel your best and you perform our best. And it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption, you get so focused on what you're doing on the task at hand, as you pointed out, everything else just seems to disappear, right? Your sense of self will get really quiet, time will pass strangely and throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical go through the roof. And uh, interestingly, even though flow is, we started out talking about action sport athletes, if you look at the skills that flow amplifies, there are four physical skills and about 11 cognitive skills that are amplified by the state. So it's actually much more a cognitive boost.
0: I almost feel like there's maybe two types of flow. There's the physical, like, like you were just saying, there's the physical and there's the mental because if someone's doing action sports and they need to act at high performance without so fast that they can't even have time to think, like let's say they're mountain climbing and they just lose their grip and they're in flow, they they, they don't even have a quarter second to figure out what's, what's the next thing to do. And then there's like you mentioned coders, coders or chess players or people involved in mental activities I feel like flow for them is going very deep internally. So you don't notice anything else and you actually are overthinking. You're thinking like 10 times faster to solve problems. And with sports, with action sports, flow seems to be like you're not thinking, you've shut down parts of the brain so the the brain can optimize the activity you're doing. So
1: yes, no, and plus. So so the thing that happens in flow is first, you're totally right. Flow is automatized behavior. It's anything we've learned to do really well that we can perform at an automatic, almost unconscious level. That's that's baseline flow. But then, whether it's chess or action sports, you're playing improv jazz on top of it. That's the big deal, Mm. right? It's not just the perfect execution of the thing you already learned how to do. You get that for sure. But and you, you nailed it, by the way. You were talking about how your brain speeds up flow. The, the neurochemicals that surround the state amplify all of the brain's information processing machinery. We take in more data per second. We pay more attention to that incoming data. We find faster connections between that incoming data and other associated bits of information in the brain. We find farther flung connections. Whole process is surrounded. People have different numbers on how much faster, and I don't think we've settled that question at all. There is some data out of Andrew Uberman's lab at Stanford that it may be it's 4x, but who knows if that's if that's accurate yet. So massively sped up, right? You get perfect execution of your thing, but you also get improv jazz on top of it. And in chess, that's the you're not gonna like you're you're making automatic moves, and you're 10 moves ahead, but it's very specific 10 moves ahead, right? You're not. Really focusing on any of the wasted moves. You're looking at two or three of the best possibilities and tracking them farther in the future, kind of thing, or, or noticing really unusual stuff that you haven't seen before, brand new possibilities. Those are, that's much more common, but it's both, right? When I'm in flow as, as a skier, I'm moving down the mountain at 50 miles an hour, doing everything right, but I'm also going, oh, wow, I can there's a weird angle to that terrain and I can jump off of it and flip sideways or same thing when I'm in flow as a writer, right? I'm, I'm really writing at a very high level, but I'm also saying, Oh wow, you can improv on top of it. You can improve that word with this word and it'll rhyme over here with this and blah, blah, blah all that sort of stuff. And you know what I'm talking about as a writer and as a chess player.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting You use the word improv jazz and you know, let's say really good high quality literary style writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction is almost like jazz with words. If you just write like everyone else, the book's going to be boring. You have to kind of have your own and you, and you mentioned this. you kind of have to have your own voice, your own, your own unique take on uh, and perspective on something.
1: Yeah. And flow for writers where we, where I train people sort of how, how to write. I said, look, if you're trying to make it as an author, there's only three things you got. You got your history and it is what it is, right? You can't like go back and invent all this stuff that's not there, that won't that won't work for you. You have the depth and quality of your research and you have your style. Those are the only things you, you got. Every, and, and I always tell people, I'm like, look, you're competing when you publish a book, you don't think about it this way, but your book is gonna come out at the same time as a hundred other books. And guys like me are gonna be the other authors. And we really care about things like style. So, you know, and, and how the writing sounds and, and and how the language works and what the craft is. We train a lot of thought leaders who wanna write books. And I'm like, your ideas may be great, but you're in a very crowded, loud marketplace and you better have craft and art there. Otherwise nobody's gonna have time for it.
0: Yeah, it's it's so true. and um, And I like that you stop at those three things because there's a fourth thing, which is you also, a writer, also have their haters. They also have this imaginary audience in their head. And that could, that fourth thing is actually anti-flow.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: I I always tell people, this
1: is another thing we talk about in flow for writers. And I, you know, I I tend to think, I tend to say things very bluntly, but the way I always say is I'm like, look, in writing one way or another, you're kind of always somebody's bitch the first 10 years of your career, you're just struggling to like make a living and anybody who will hire you, you will do whatever they want you to do. And then when you finally like make a name for yourself and are at a decent level, I think this is not just writing, it's every creative field. You spend about 10 years being creative inside of other people's boxes. Like when I finally got to like my first book was out, it was a bestseller. I was, you know, on staff at major magazines and I was starting to work for the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal or, you know, at that level. They didn't want the best Stephen Kotler story I could write. They could give a fuck about my style. They wanted the best New York Times story I could write. So phase two. And then phase three, I think when you finally get, as you're talking about, big enough to have an audience, man, they have very specific needs and wants and desires. And sometimes they don't like it when you do something new. And you know what I mean? It's, and in a sense, it's a weird, it's awesome. It's amazing. But it's a living negotiation because there's real people on the other side of that thing.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. There's a living negotiation. Like, you're all the time getting two types of comments. One is, oh, I I love this. And the other comment is, you know, I like the old James. What what happened to him? (laughs) And, you know, uh, uh, Woody Allen talks about this in his recently released autobiography, is that it was very important to him to not care what people think either positive or negative. So he wouldn't read the negative reviews, but by the same token, when he won the Oscar for best picture and for Annie hall, he didn't even know until someone like woke him the next morning and, and told him, and he, he thought about it for a few minutes and then he got back, uh, writing to the, whatever current script he was writing then. So you, you can't, you can't, that that's going to be a distraction. You just have to keep.
1: Yeah. I improving. don't want I I, to me. Once my editor signs off on a book, it's done. Like I will do the work to promote it because books don't come along very often. And I want to, you know, give it the best shot, but I'm like, I don't, I've never, I don't think I've ever really read a review, um, much, you know, every now and again, I'll read the first one or two lines. Um, but I don't read any of my, I don't, it's just not, it's not, I'm not interested. I'm on to the next creative thing.
0: I got to learn that technique. Cause I, I, and you you basically mentioned this, that that basically will block flow, caring too much about what others think and being someone's bitch, basically.
1: Activating your prefrontal cortex will flow. you mentioned changes in our biology. Part of it is that the prefrontal cortex, part of your brain that's behind your forehead, gets very quiet, it starts to deactivate. This is why time passes so strangely in flow because time's a calculation performed all over the prefrontal cortex. So parts of it wink out and you can't separate past from present from future and you're plunged into that sort of elongated now that shows up in flow. Um, Same thing that happens to your sense of self, blah, blah, blah. That's all prefrontal cortical stuff, but your ego essentially lives in your prefrontal cortex. So anytime you're thinking, God, does this make me look dumb or fat or ugly or, you know, any of the crazy shit we say to ourselves all the time in our head. Anytime you're saying those things and thinking those things, you're totally activating the prefrontal cortex. You're blocking the the kind of exact neurobiology you need for the experience.
0: Right. So let's go into basically how to get flow. And we're not going to be able to cover everything in your book. Your book goes into detail on every possible pathway we could go down. but essentially, shorthand, and correct me if I'm wrong, we could start going over the the beginnings of this is there's a combination of passion, purpose, you know, developing the skills to the point of mastery. And then there's this ephemer this more nuanced neurochemistry, concentration, you know, supercharging that happens in the final flow state, and then there's kind of an after flow state.
1: So yes, no, and plus. Uh, let's, so you're looking at a couple different things. Uh, so let's start with flow and how to get more flow, because that was, that was the question you started with, and that's the best place to start here. Flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 22 of them. 12 of them are individual triggers, what I'll use to get into flow myself, or or James, you'll use yourself. And then there's group triggers. What if you and I wanted to get an interpersonal flow, which is two people talking, right, totally in flow, we can go for the group flow triggers or a whole team. Brain's great brainstorming session uh, is group flow in action. Um, Or you go to a concert and get swept up in the music and lost with the band and merged with the audience. That's communitas. it's group flow at scale. So there's 10, triggers on the group side. There's 12 on the individual side. There's probably way more. This is just what we've discovered so far. They all do the same thing. Flow follows focus. It only shows up when our attention is right here, right now. So that's what the triggers do. They drive attention into the now. And as you you sort of mentioned, they do this neurochemically. They do one of two things. They produce neurochemicals called norepinephrine or dopamine. They do a lot of things in the brain. They're pleasure chemicals, as you mentioned, but they're also focusing chemicals. In fact, if I give you a little bit of norepinephrine and dopamine, that's curiosity. Think about when you're curious about something, you could pay attention to it without a lot of effort. Cool. And if I give you a lot more norepinephrine and dopamine, you actually, that's passion. That's how the brain produces passion. So think about like how much you pay attention you pay somebody as you're falling in love with them. That's what these neurochemicals do, and that that will drive flow. Or this these triggers lower cognitive load. all the crap you're trying to think about at any one time and if i lower cognitive load what i do is i liberate a bunch of energy that the brain can then spend on paying attention to what's going on right here right now that's what all the triggers do some things do just one thing some of them do two some of them do all three of these things the simplest one flow follows focus right it shows up when all our attention is in the right here right now so the easiest place to start this work is especially this is not for athletics but this is if you're just a typical knowledge worker The research shows the human body is designed to focus best for 90-minute periods. The same way that REM sleep and we dream for 90-minute states, that's also a waking thing too. We focus really well for 90, 120 minutes. So we tell people to try to start your day with 90 minutes of uninterrupted concentration on your most important task, meaning the task that if you got it accomplished, would be the biggest win for the day. If you're a night owl by the way just start your evening work session you want to like match your work session to when you have the most energy normally for me i'm an extreme lark i get up at four o'clock in the morning that's when i have the best most focus and energy so that's when i'll write which is the hardest thing i have to do every day first of all a lot of people hear this and go whoa i don't have 90 minutes that's crazy the thing you have to remember is that for example mckinsey did a study of top executives in flow and remember, self-reported. So they went around and said, how much more productive are you in flow? But they talked to a lot of people over a decade and the average was 500% more productive. Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm saying start your day with 90 minutes of uninterrupted concentration, your hardest task, but flow massively amplifies productivity. And as a state of complete concentration, if you're not giving yourself the opportunity to have complete concentration, and, and this also means Practice distraction management ahead of time. Shut off your cell phone. Shut off your smartphone. Text messages. Anything that's going to sort of block your focus out of what you're what you're trying to look at. That's where that's where I start this thing. And the next place I always go to is okay. I've told you to start with ninety minutes. Work on your hardest task. How should you work on that task? You mentioned there was some stuff that is less right, a little less easy to dial in. This is sort of the, the next thing, which is often called the golden rule flow. It's what's known as the challenge skills ratio or challenge skills balance. The idea that we pay the most attention to the task at hand, what we're doing when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill sets. So you wanna stretch, but not snap.
0: And you mentioned specifically, you have this number 4% where you wanna be able to challenge yourself to do something 4% above your skill level. I'm curious like why so specific 4% and like how, m- most things you can't measure even. I said that in the book.
1: I said, we use this metaphorically. I tell this story in Rise of Superman. So what happened was the godfather of flow psychology, Mihai, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi was at Google and he sat down with a Google mathematician and they were like, well, we want to put a number on the difference between challenge and skills. And they said, we're, they did a back of the envelope. Nobody took it seriously calculation and came up with 4%. We took that 4% at the flow research collective and looked really hard at it for about four or five years and looked at it in all kinds of contexts to see, is it true? Is it, and every, it's very hard to measure. And what are you talking about and blah, blah. And so that's why I say it's a metaphor, but it actually turns out to be a damn accurate metaphor. And the way to think about the reason I put the number in there is it's so damn low. You know what i mean like most people go wow i, I can actually be four per, i can push four percent like it's totally doable for anybody on any given day which is why I, that's what i want people to understand four percent is slightly outside your comfort zone right you got to be a little uncomfortable and that uncomfortability is good for flow right a tiny little bit of that anxiety that like ooh, i'm stretching here a little bit is really good it drives a lot of focus it's useful too much is terrible but a little bit is good and with people who are shyer, meeker, quieter, less aggressive by nature, 4% is tough. You know what I mean? Like you're going to, you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable, not too crazy uncomfortable. But for, on the other side of the coin for peak performers, the problem with peak performers is they're like, ah, give me a challenge at 20%, 30%, 40%, 50% greater. Cause that like keeps me, my eyes open. and something I'm paying attention. And I'm not saying don't go after those high hard goals they're really important you get an 11 to 25 percent boost in motivation by having properly set high hard goals that's amazing that's like two hours of free work um, for an eight hour baseline but you've got to chunk down what you're doing today into that four percent sweet spot
0: yeah and it's so interesting because you see a lot of uh talented professionals in every industry in every field that hit a plateau where they're sort of satisfied with where they are and they're, they're not improving because they, they let's take, you know, chess as an example, some people could play all day and never improve because they're not challenging themselves to learn new things. And it's clear to them, what would be new, but they're satisfied with where they are. And so they probably less and less achieve these flow states is my guess. And I'm just using chess as an example, but there could be many uh, industries. So, one thing that's helpful to
1: know here is that flow is a spectrum experience so it works like any emotion in a sense anger you can be a little irked you could be crazily homicidally murderous it's still anger it's the same emotion. just opposite ends of a spectrum flow is like that there's a state so flow is psychologically defined by six core characteristics when all six of these characteristics show up that's how you measure flow and we've been named we've been talking about the complete concentration of the present moment the diminishment of sense of self, time, pa- time dilation, which is time passing, strangely speeding up or slowing down, a couple others, auto-telling experience, which is just the of pleasure created by, by the flow state. And you can have a state of microflow where those so all six showed up, but they're dialed down to like one or two. So this is an experience we've all had. You sit down to write a quickie email. Right, And you look up an hour later and an hour has gone by and you didn't notice. And maybe your sense of self didn't disappear, but suddenly you pop back into your bo- consciousness, and you're like, oh my God, I really got to go to the bathroom. I had no idea. right? So you lost bodily awareness a little bit. Maybe not your whole sense of self vanished or anything like that, but that's a microflow state. And we have those all the time. In fact, one of the fastest ways to start getting into the Deeper, more macro flow states, which is the other end of the spectrum, is notice when you're in micro flow and start layering in more of flow's triggers um, along the way. Is a very quick, quick way to go. It so it's you got to remember that there's like a, a spectrum that starts with like focus on one end and flow on the very end. And It goes through like focus and engagement and your enjoyment and engagement and somewhere in there is flow. And nobody exactly knows. Uh, where the dividing line is. We work with Adam Ghazali, he's on my board as a neuroscientist at UCSF, and he's taking a, a like he's looking really hard at this and trying to sort of measure these different changes in states of consciousness as you go along. But it's a tricky one and it's kind of funny, but like most of the work research on attention, the great research on attention was done in the 80s and the 90s. And it was done before we had discovered the endocannabinoid system. Which is a major neurotransmitter system in the body it was discovered it was we had knew about it then, but we didn't realize that it plays a massive role in focus and attention and stress and everything else so like literally like all the books on uh attention were even written before all the new neuroscience sort of showed up, so we all there's a whole bunch of rethinking that has to go into solving this puzzle right now
0: so when you when you um find yourself getting into micro, let's say you recognize you're getting into microflow and you and you've been focused and you're starting to feel that, that state, what do you layer in to enhance the experience? So there's
1: five triggers that all produce dopamine. And these are the five I would reach for to turn microflow into macroflow. Novelty. So whenever we encounter anything new, we produce a little bit of dopamine. This is not a how to apply micro to macro, but I'll give you an example.
0: I'm going to write it down.
1: I have to read a lot of neuroscience textbooks. And as you know, they're not always the most exciting things in the world. I quite like them, but they're not super fun. So I always try to go, I'll take two or three neuroscience textbooks, and I'll go check into a motel someplace beautiful with a balcony. And I'll sit on the balcony and look at this novel, gorgeous landscape and read my neuroscience books because the novelty is increasing dopamine right? So I'm getting a little more dopamine. It's moving me a little bit closer to flow. Now, same example. Insight, when you connect ideas together, that will also produce dopamine. We all know this. You've done Sudoku or a crossword puzzle, that little rush of pleasure you get when you get an answer right, that's dopamine. And that's what you get for pattern recognition. So this also happens like when I'm reading my book on neuroscience, I got a little dopamine in my head from novelty when I get a little bit of that emotional, wow, something caught my attention, right? That wow, that little bit of surprise, that's also a little bit of dopamine. And I want to focus on that a little bit and see if my brain will make a connection. Because now I've got a little dopamine from the surprise and the novelty of the new idea. Can I get an insight connection kind of thing? Because then I'll start to snowball towards flow. You started out by talking about intrinsic motivators, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. These are all big motivators and we could and talk about them, but they're also flow triggers because when we have when we have all these things, the brain is producing norepinephrine and dopamine, it's driving more focus. So if the in my example, like if I'm reading a neurocience textbook that is lined up with what I'm curious about, what I'm passionate about, my purpose in the world, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, even more dopamine. So the, the secret is just to know how the neurobiology works a little bit, so you can just sort of stack things in your favor. It's about working much smarter and, and much easier as a rule.
0: So let, let's start with the concept of passion because it seems like to, to get into macro flow, you have to find the things you're passionate about. And you suggest in the book some some methods for doing it, like write down the 25 things yeah, I give, most so you I most curious about. Could,
1: by the way, your listeners, we put it online forever. We built an interactive worksheets, passionrecipe.com. Anybody can go there. That part of the book is uh. We, we just, because so many people have been t- asking about this. Um, I hear, you know what, I'm sure you hear the same thing. How do I find my passion? That sort of thing. One, here's a formula that's worked for thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Two, I always want to talk about, so people mystify passion a lot. And let's talk about where what these things are and how they work and what they do. The book starts with motivation right art impossible starts with motivation it ends with flow but it starts with motivation because it's the energy that gets you in the game there's extrinsic motivators money is an extrinsic motivator sex is an extrinsic motivator and they're good motivators but only until you sort of like can meet your basic needs and have a little bit left over and then they don't actually work to really drive performance improvement then you have to reach for other things you have to reach for your intrinsic, internal view motivators. And the most basic of those is curiosity. So that's where you want to start. Passion is nothing more than the intersection of two or three of your curiosities. And you always got to remember that passion on the front end doesn't look anything or feel anything like passion on the back end. I say, what does passion look like in sport? And you say, well, it's LeBron James windmill dunking over some... Hapless point guard's head in the NBA finals. And that's what passion looks like. And you're right, but that's end-strain passion. Early stage passion looks like a little kid in a driveway shooting balls through a hoop, right? And sometimes they go in and sometimes they don't. That's what passion looks like on the front end. And you can't expect passion to feel, right? Like LeBron James with a windmill dunk when you're at the stage of I'm, it's just, it's curiosity. And if I'm getting a little bit better, maybe it'll get a little more you know what I mean? Like it's that's it's, it always starts there for everybody. It's not like you wake up one day and go, Oh my God, I'm so passionate about this thing. And suddenly it feels like magic. That feeling of magic of propulsion is earned.
0: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in airbnbs. i I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different airbnbs over a three year period. and I loved it. I love I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, i of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love... Hims is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMSS for now Not that on. you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? you mentioned this in the book that personal improvement is different than stalking the impossible. And I think passion is part of the difference because when you're passionate about something, and, and again, you, you bring this up in the book, it's not necessarily pleasant. Let's say I'm suddenly passionate about basketball, something I've never been passionate about before. And I'm watching LeBron James. And I'm like, man, that looks great. I'm going to be so happy when I could do that. And then I try to do that. The first 20,000 times I try to do that, or maybe forever, I'm never going to do it. So it, passion is often followed by a lot of misery as you're as you're beginning the, the journey of getting better at something. I want
1: to come at this from two angles. First is Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford. Know him well. He's got a great phrase that I think is so apt here. You were talking, just remind me of something he says. And he, he often says that the thing And by the way, if he had said this to me before I wrote the damn book, it would have been in the book. This is the one thing that I really wish was in the book because it's so great. He said, the difference between every peak performer I've ever met and everybody else is that peak performers know the order of the process is always crawl, walk, run. Everybody else comes in, they're like, yeah, man, I don't really want to walk. I don't want to crawl. I don't really want to walk. I sort of want to start out jogging and they waste a fuck ton of time. Peak performers go, yeah, man, you're going to start out at the bottom. It's going to suck. It sucks for everybody. It's going to feel bad. It feels bad for everybody. That's what it means to learn, and you just don't care because you're used to it. You've done it enough times. You're like, yeah, I'm going to suck, and I'm probably going to suck in public, and it's going to be embarrassing, and I'm not going to like it, but who cares? I think that's one of the biggest differences, and it saves so much time, and it looks like the peak performers got so much farther faster but what they really didn't do is just lose a bunch of time at the front end looking for a shortcut, which I think is what most people do. Yeah, that's... Well, hold on, James, let me add one more thing to it. Because again, I, I, passion gets mystified, and I want to talk about why it's important. Because you said, as you pointed out, you're like, it doesn't feel very good. Why is it so, what does it matter if sometimes passion doesn't feel so good? And the reason is, whether or not we like this, humans are fairly simple machines. And if you want to impact performance, you only have a handful of tools to work with. You have your fo- your attention, which is your gateway to your entire life. Nothing happens in your world without you putting your attention on it first. As a general rule, it's the gateway to everything. You have attention, you have action. You put enough attention and action on, you get habit. It's sort of the toolkit, etc. cetera. The point is, Under normal conditions, focus and attention is very fucking expensive, calorically expensive, emotionally expensive, energetically expensive. Think about how hard it is to pay attention to something you're not interested in, you're not curious about, you're not passionate about, you're not anything about. Think about how hard that is. Then think about what happens when you're curious. You get focus for free. That's the big deal. Why is passion such a big deal? lots of focus for free even if it feels bad you get focus for free right and passion like any learning curve like any process good days bad days bad days don't go away because you're passionate in fact things matter a little bit more because you're oh wow I'm, i'm doing the thing i came to do it really matters this counts that's a little bit turned up but what you're getting for that is a lot of focus for free And if you think about the fact that your brain is about 2% of your body weight and uses, at rest, 25% of your energy. So it's a huge energy hog under just like low-intensity conditions. Turn up that intensity. I have to learn this thing or I need to do this thing. You're burning a ton of energy. If you can get that energy for free, that's the big deal with passion. That's why passion matters so much.
0: Yeah. It, it reminds me of, uh, you, you, quote Josh Waitzkin in the book, uh, who wrote this book, the, the art of learning.
1: I, by the way, I just sent Josh a message saying, dude, I forgot that your book was called the art of learning until after the art of impossible was coming out. And I looked at the title. And I went, Oh God, I hope I didn't steal Josh's title inadvertently, um, without noticing. And I had, I'm sending him a bottle of booze. So I just have to mention that I know there's a similarity between the titles and hopefully it's cause I think Josh is just a badass the peak performance world and really knows what he's talking about.
0: Well, he's someone who, who was a, a strong chess master and strong at, um, martial arts, two different. Yeah. Arts. Uh, yeah. He was like a world champion at martial arts. So, uh, but he says, learn, you know, you have to learn to be your best when you're at your worst. So often you're trying to get good at something and you have a bad day. That's the moment where you have to pick yourself up and perform even better or, you know, because you have to continue doing what you're doing and learn from the mistakes.
1: I think that's true, but you know, feedback's a flow trigger. So immediate feedback is a flow trigger. So it's, it's sort of your friend to learn from your mistakes. It'll take you in the right direction. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. Sometimes I get annoyed a little bit when I think this concept is harped on too much. The, the fact that failure is a learning experience you can only have so many learning experiences before oh yeah
1: well there yeah there i mean i you know there's a difference between rapid experimentation and a shit ton of failures right rapid experimentation is i'm asking a bunch of questions i don't exactly know what the right answer is so i'm but once you're like okay this is the right answer you only want a couple failures in a row and then you're just you know you're like okay i'd like i'd like to start getting better um I agree with that.
0: So, so a lot of this is about learning and kind of the meta skills of learning, the skill of learning a skill. You have a chapter of the skill. Yeah. So, I mean,
1: let's take it back to flow for half a second and the path to mastery, right? Which is what we're talking about in a sense, challenge skills balance where we started, right? You have to, if you want to, if you want the maximized flow in your life, you have to be using your skills to the utmost to stay in that challenge skills sweet spot. And that means you're going to keep, growing and learning, right? Because you're always stretching and you have to, and if one of the, one of the reasons there's, there's a big section on learning there is if you want more flow in your life and you don't have good learning skills, you can't keep up with being able to use your skills to the utmost. You're not going to like be able to learn fast enough to keep up with kind of the turbo boost that flow provides.
0: Right. And this is related to your, you know, challenge yourself 4% higher than your skills you have this experience with Laird Hamilton, where if I'm following it correctly, you were jet skiing with him while you were on his back and then you jumped off or so, something like that? Yeah, so,
1: okay, uh, let me tell the whole story because it's kind of- That seems of, like yeah. outside
0: of your comfort well, zone. so
1: <laughs> um, you have to start with an understanding that back in the 1990s, when action sports were just coming up, as a general professional action sport, athletes would consistently try to kill journalists. They all thought it was funny. So they would literally like, we'd show up to do a story and they'd be like, okay, but you got to come along with me on this adventure and this adventure and this adventure. And I mean, it's funny now, but I have friends of mine who literally like had PTSD after some of these assignments. And I'm not making that up. Like literally it got PTSD in some of these assignments. They were rough to the journalists. Laird was famous for like, he liked to do three activities (laughs) in a given day. And so activity one was we went surfing together. And the only reason it was dealable is because the waves were just fairly manageable that day and like he could beat the shit out of me but then he puts me on a jet ski and i've never been on a jet ski when i was a little kid when i was like 11 years old i got on the friend back of a friend's motorcycle and he friend's older brother's motorcycle and he was just trying to show off and was doing like 40 miles an hour through a forest and i got bounced off the bike into a tree and ever since that point whenever i was on the back of a machine that's going fast, if I'm not driving, it's very hard for me to sort of like stay calm and cool, right? So Laird is taking me out on the jet ski and we're eventually gonna go, I think we were gonna try to work on some kind of toe surfing or something like that, but he just wants me to get used to the speed and he he puts me on the back of his jet ski and he takes off and we're doing like 50 and I'm freaking out. And I believe personally that it is better to go right at your fears than it is to be, I don't like, I'm so opposed to like how feel fears in me that I will go right at the thing that I'm afraid of because I don't like it that much. And so Laird back on the beach was like, dude, worst thing that happens, you get bounced off this thing. You'll probably get wind knocked out. You might get beat up a little bit. So we're doing 50 miles an hour. And I was like, Laird, you sure I'm not gonna die if I if I fall off? And he's like, no, you're, you're fine, I promise. And I jumped. um, And uh, what was funny about the whole thing is like, I skipped across the water and it hurt a little bit and whatever, but I got through that. And when he swung the thing around to pick me up, he was laughing really hard and he looked at me and like pulled me back aboard. He was like, you too, huh? And what he meant was he knew exactly why I had to do that because he is wired the same way. Like he, he talks about it in the book that like, when you're going after hard things, you're scared all the time. Like it's, people mistake courage as I don't feel fear. That's not courage. That's something else. Courage is I feel the fear. I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways. And that's a different thing. I, growing up, I thought like, especially as a man, like I had to be courageous and this meant like I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to feel fear of anything. And no, it turns out that Everybody's scared all the time. In fact, the harder you go, the more scared you are. It, what Laird's point was is what you do with the emotion is exactly what matters. And by the way, fear is such a great motivator and so useful to work with, the exact same reason as passion is. You get focus for free. When you go at the things you're naturally scared of, when you learn to work with the emotion and use it for your benefit, you're getting focus for free. You have to, you, Yeah. right? it's, it's a huge benefit. And you know, this during comedy, like you, you're getting so much focus for free. Cause you're still going in front of audiences and it's scary.
0: You know, if I, and this, this applies also to public speaking, if I'm not afraid before I do comedy or a talk, then I start to get nervous because I know that my most significant bombs, like bad performances happen when I was maybe a little overconfident and not afraid. Like, it's good for me to feel a little fear because like you say, you're going to focus more. A little bit,
1: yeah. I mean, it's literally, it's norepinephrine. Too much norepinephrine is anxiety. But when it's a little bit, first of all, it primes the brain for learning. Your brain moves faster, right? So like one of the reasons speeches go better when you're a little nervous is if you screw something up, which you're bound to. If you're going to talk for an hour on stage. you're going to You're going to make a mistake or two. If you're not, a little sped up, it's hard to correct in real time. You won't notice until it's too late, but if you've got a little bit of norepinephrine in your system, your brain's going to go, Hey man, you just made an error, fix it in the next sentence. Right. And you just do it in real time. But without that, you're not, you're literally not thinking quite as fast.
0: Yeah. And this is critically true in comedy where, you know, not only is timing everything, but, the audience reacts in sort of quarter second intervals and you have to be kind of aware of everything they're doing who likes you who doesn't like you and then respond accordingly very quickly before they sense that you're you're getting a little nervous
1: the only thing that i think that may be harder than you've done this i'm sure where you've given a speech in foreign countries and the people are listening to the translation through the headphones and they get the translation like 15 to 20 seconds later. So humor in those situations is the hardest thing because half the audience speaks English and they're going to laugh when you say the joke. And the other half of the audience is going to laugh maybe like 20 seconds later, if at all. And nobody likes to laugh alone. So trying to be funny through a language barrier to me is one of the hardest. I just still haven't solved that one.
0: Yeah, it's hard. I, but right before the lockdown, I was performing all around the Netherlands where they speak English, but they, it, it, it's almost like there's a mental delay. They speak English, but it's not, you know, it's not a thousand American percent. English. Yeah, no, it's yeah. Different,
1: a different version of
0: it. And so it just, it depended on the audience, like how quickly I could get them basically in group flow with me, if, if to use a, a word, but you know, a lot of flow interweaves with uh, with learning and you give various bunch of chapters here about mastery and learning. I want to talk real quickly about both the 10,000 hour rule and the 80, 20 rule. And you, you talk about the 80, 20 rule, Tim Ferriss's book, the four hour work week is about this. You mentioned Tim Ferriss in the, in the book, you know, the idea is 20% of the work will often produce 80% of the value. And there's, there's many good examples, like 20% of the seeds in a garden will produce 80% of the flowers that eventually bloom and, and so on. But I'm always curious. And, and it's a good, technique as Tim has shown, have you, as you've demonstrated, it's a good technique to find the 20% of learning a skill. So you can get 80% of the skill by only doing 20% of the work. Can you give an example maybe that describes it better than I just did?
1: Yes. And so there's two kinds of learning that you got to focus on, right? There's knowledge learning and there's skill learning and there's systems in the book for both. This is on the skill side. Um, meaning I want to learn to play guitar. I want to learn Brazilian jujitsu. I want to learn chess, so to, you know, take, I want to learn a foreign language. Those kinds of things, this is more applicable to. And the example Tim gave when I interviewed him that I still think is great is most rock and roll is three chords, right? ACG. And that's, so if you learn those three chords on a guitar, you can play 80% of rock. And that's his point. There are whole songs. Most of Bob Dylan's catalog, a lot of punk are just like a lot of punk rock, you know, three or four chords. So that's an example. Now, what I say in the book is I think the 80-20 rule is great for all the stuff that you need that support your central thing. You don't want an 80-20, like I don't want an 80-20 writing, how to write. I'm an author. That's the main thing I do where I study the neuroscience of peak human performance. Those are not cases where the 80/20 rule is a good idea. Those are cases where I want to learn every possible thing I possibly can learn. But the example I you know I give in the book is learning legal ease. Lots of contracts kind of float through by thing, and it used to be every time one come through, I'd look at it and I'd have to get on the phone with the lawyers to figure out what the hell it meant. And finally, I was like a couple of years ago, I was like, okay, I'm just going to learn legal ease. And I essentially 80/20 my contracts. I took every contract I've ever signed. I went, you know, through it and highlighted all the words I didn't know. And I took the, you know, the 20% that showed up across the boards. And that's what I, you know, I learned. And suddenly I found that I could read most of my contracts without having to like spend all the money on lawyers to ask them what the hell it meant. You know, I could have much shorter conversations. And, you know, by the time I said, sitting on, I probably saved tens of thousands of dollars a year on legal fees, yeah. right? Um, that's one that, that, that I used, uh, that's a quick example.
0: How do you, in general, how do you find out what the right 20% is in a domain that you're still uh, a novice in?
1: Tim will tell you, and I sort of agree. I mean, so orthogonal thinking will help. You know what I mean? In fact, I think one of the experiments Tim ran with Josh Waitzkin as a chess master is when they were 80, 20 in chess, they focused on end games only. Like Josh taught Tim to play with I think the king and a pawn is what they started on, on the board. And so like literally like they took everything out of it and focused on the 20% that is going to win or lose the game sort of thing was one way to do it. But, and that was Josh's choice for Tim. So I think you have to bring experts in. I tend to, when I'm trying to solve those things, I tend to talk to about three to five people. I try to talk to a couple people I know and a couple total strangers for sure on that one. And I just look for commonalities. Hey, what's the 20% of your, few? you know what I mean? And um, in fact, we just did this uh, at the Flow Research Collective to make a neuroscience class for everybody who we hire at the, at the collective, because there's a lot of people you know who, who do work for us that aren't trained as psychologists or neuroscientists, but we need them to understand the basic stuff that we do. We just sort of tried to 80-20 neuroscience. I did this work with a guy with a neuroscientist from the University of Miami, and we tried to like eighty twenty his freshman year neuroscience class.
0: And what, what did you conclude? What was the
1: twenty? It's not totally done yet, but it's a little bit about like the. I always say that the the, you, the first thing you know, we talk about this in the book. I like, I think that this is for a subject. One, a tremendous amount of a subject you need if you can understand the voyage of ideas. First of all the human brain is built to understand narrative, right? We we we're storytellers, the brain naturally tells stories and connects cause effects. So we're built for narrative. So the first thing I always want people to get is some kind of over I mean there's an order to it but like very useful to have an overarching macroscopic framework of just the voyage of ideas that is whatever subject. What was the first question somebody asked? What did it lead to? What did that lead to? What did it, that that's what any subject is. Somebody had a question. Somebody answered that question. Somebody had another question. Somebody answered that question. That voyage of discovery, that's a narrative. Most people, even if they can't understand the technical details of what was actually discovered, they can understand that. And it's a way, it gives you a big, this is the big Christmas tree. And all the facts are going to be the ornaments. But if you have the big tree, you at least know where to hang the ornaments. And then when it comes to the ornaments, a lot of technical subjects. Most of the thinking of the subject is like tucked inside of the vocabulary in weird ways. And the example I give in the book is really familiar is Homo sapiens, right? Inside the, maybe, you know, saying Homo sapiens instead of humans sounds pretentious, okay. But what's tucked inside that is all kinds of information about genus and species. There's even attitude, right? The Homo sapiens means wise apes. So there's this idea that at some point we thought we were wise apes. Right. So there's like human superiority is baked into it. There's a lot of information tucked into a word that most people think just means human. And it doesn't. It means a lot. There's a lot of other data actually in there. So I think there's something to be said for learning key technical parts of the vocabulary because so much of the subject is built into that. So I, those are the things I sort of start with. But there's a, you know, there's sort of a, a, a good map on how to proceed through any subject in the book.
0: And then, uh, the 10,000 hour rule we were talking, yeah, we were talking, about, talking about a little beforehand. bit. Yeah. Uh, it's the idea I've talked about it a lot on this podcast, so the listeners know, know what it is, but I don't really like the We're similar ages. If we were to start being interested in something new, it, we would be in our sixties by the time we put in our 10,000 hours, maybe even our seventies. So what's the deal with the 10,000 hour rule? Well, how can you, oh, there's no shortcuts. How can you circumvent, how, in your view, how do you circumvent it a little?
1: One, you know, as you know, and Anders with the first point out, 10,000 hours is arbitrary. Malcolm Gladwell right. came up with that number because it was, you know, the average amount of time a 18-year-old violinist professional or a 20-year-old professional violinist had practiced. You know, if he would have made the cutoff 30 years old, it would have been 20,000 hours, or you know what I mean? If it was 18, it would have been 8,000 hours. So it's sort of arbitrary because there's nothing that says 20 year old musicians are world-class experts. And as Anders himself pointed out, there are certain subjects like memory, memorization, where you can really get to expert level performance in a month or so, month and a half. Like you can get there fairly quickly with certain skills. And so that was Anders' point. So Anders challenged his own thinking on it. There was a major challenge mounted by another a mutual friend of ours, David Epstein, who uh, talked about how ten thousand hours sort of created a cult of early specialization, people trying to get that. And that like that denies the fact that like it's getting ten thousand hours of mastery isn't phenomenal if you don't have match fit, a perfect blend. We talked about passion purpose to Mastery, those intrinsic motivators. That's sort of what match fit is, right? It's a blend between the thing you're doing lines up with your values and your strengths. And when you have match fit, you tend to go a lot farther, faster, and you tend to get a lot more flow. And flow is sort of the research does seem to say that it shortcuts the path to mastery. Meaning the action sport athletes in the nineteen nineties were getting there a lot faster and they didn't follow any of Anders rules, right? They didn't, their practice was not deliberate in any, in any st- meaningful way or all that stuff. And it, so it seems, and I, I don't know if this is across the board because once an activity starts generating flow, you love it so much, you'll put in 10,000 hours without even thinking about it, right? It just becomes your favorite thing to do. So it may shortcut the path to mastery, but you're going to end up putting in the hours anyways. So that seems to be the case, but I, again, I think $10,000 is arbitrary and I think you brought up a really great point when you started this. As you get older, Tim noticed this when he was talking about in, in his book on, on mastery and learning, he talked about this. You brought it up in this podcast, I think it's true. The first subject you master, it's gonna take, what let's call it $10,000 for lack of a better word, for sure. Second one, probably will too. And even though it's always crawl, walk, run, meaning you're gonna suck at the beginning later on, I think the more subjects you start to master, the faster you start to master them. And sometimes you run into something like, we were talking earlier about stand-up comedy, you've mastered five or six or seven different disciplines, James, and yet here's something where you've got 10,000 hours in easily and there's so many sub-skills, it's super hard, and you don't feel like you're getting to mastery um, as quickly as you have in other things. So I think that happens too along the way, but I think as a general rule, you know, I think if you were trying to master stand-up comedy before you had mastered the five or six things you've already mastered, it would go three or four times slower. You're bringing a lot of skills in.
0: I definitely, think that's right. Right. I mean, uh, uh, David Epstein, who you just mentioned in, in his book range, he mentions how his example, where he was very interested in sports and he was interested in geology and the intersection and you talk about the intersections in your book, the intersection is much faster to learn. Combining two skills that you've already mastered. Uh, it's one, it's just a next step to kind of figure out the nuances that bring those disciplines together into an intersection. And then you become the best in the world at that intersection. So he's, he was the youngest writer at sports illustrated because he wrote about the science of sports.
1: I agree with that. And i you know, more than that, You know, I talk about turning, we started out this conversation talking about how turning curiosity into passion. When you're at the intersection of multiple curiosities, that's a lot of focus for free. There's a lot of energy there, right? Like if chess is, you you know, for David, it was geology had a certain amount of energy. Sports had a certain amount of energy. When you put them together, you get both the energy that you brought to each of those things. And then the new stuff created. There's a bunch of novelty when you start looking at those intersections and going deep and all of that stuff is more dopamine. It's more focus. It's more flow. It's going to get you farther, faster.
0: So what's the practical use? So it's one thing to say, okay, when I do X, Y, and Z, I achieve flow, but let's say you have to give a public talk or you have to sit down and start writing your next book or you have to climb a mountain and you're just not feeling in a good mood for whatever reason. What can you, practically what, how can you take this knowledge of flow and basically kick yourself into gear?
1: So this is other stuff in the book. It's not flow specific, but there's a bunch of stuff. Positive psychology has taught us about human peak performance is basically what, what I call the six positive psychology basics. And three of them are about sort of manicuring your mind, a gratitude practice, a mindfulness practice, or an exercise practice, a regular exercise, the three best ways to tip your mood and lower anxiety levels. So one, like I wouldn't start with you got to do the thing. I would start with what are your what are your habits? How are you sort of taking care of your anxiety levels on you know on a daily day basis cuz the positive psychology basics um let me back up and say when we talk about the positive psychology basics, I'm talking about a 5-minute gratitude practice and I'm happy to go through the science of why these things work, but I'm do them quickly for an 11-minute breathwork mindfulness session or 20 to 40 minutes of exercise. I always tell people under normal conditions, try to do one of those three things a day because it will lower anxiety levels, lower the amount of norepinephrine and cortisol in your system and open up a lot of peak performance. So one, I always start there. Two, people spend a great deal of time and energy caring about how things feel. People like you're saying, oh, I don't feel so good. I have to sit down and write a book. And I'm saying one of the things peak performers know is who cares how you feel? The job is to do the job, right? You do the job. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff in that book that talks about training grit and training motivation to make all that stuff so much easier, to get your biology to work for you rather than against you all that stuff that you're still going to have bad days and peak performance is all about compound interest, right? It's, you do a little bit today, you do a little bit tomorrow, you do a little bit the next day, you do a little bit the next day. And after months and months of this, you have massive amounts of motivation, but you got to do it every day. It's about showing up every day. And I would say you're spending too much time thinking about how you feel, get down to the job. Nothing feels better than accomplishment anyways.
0: Yeah. And you bring up a good point that understanding the patience of mastery and the psychology of that is very important. Like it's, it's not, if, you, if you're trying to be the, the best jet skier in the world and you lose the first hundred races you're in, you just have to keep Do you, by the way, do you, you think it.
1: jet skiers actually have races?
0: I, um, I have no idea. I, don't, I, just, I have
1: no idea either. I'm just wondering if jet skiers actually have, I'm, I'm guessing they do. But, and I bet they're probably cool to watch. I was just wondering.
0: Let's say you're going to compete in a race and you have, it's the patience of getting good. You can't be frustrated with yourself if you have a down moment.
1: Well, so a couple of things, right? And We talk about this in the book. Flow states are, are not a binary. They don't work like you're in the zone or you're out of the zone. There's a cycle and the front end of that flow cycle is a struggle phase. And because of the nature of the struggle phase, you're literally going... You, frustration is built in. Frustration is a sign that you're moving in the right direction, like towards more flow and better performance. So one of the reasons that you know I tell people to like be cautious of their emotions and don't read too much into it is in peak performance, oftentimes your emotions don't mean what you think they mean. Most people feel frustration. I'm not saying the frustration feels any better. right? The actual experience of frustration always sucks. But when you realize that sucky feeling is a sign that you're moving in the right direction, that's much more liberating, right? It's one thing when you're just climbing uphill and you're always climbing uphill. That's really ridiculous. But when you're climbing uphill, you're like, oh, wow, this is really hard, but I can see the top. That's sort of a different thing. And that's, you know, that so frustration is sort of built into the process. And there's new research that we're doing at the the collective, not 100% yet, but seems like even in a micro phase so like even let's say you go back to your jet ski thing where there's no struggle phase the race it's go bang right and and like no struggle phase there's going to at least if you're going to drop into flow be a moment where you have to trigger the fight response where you have to really lean into the challenge because you need a little bit of that testosterone and some of the other stuff you get from the fight response this may not be a 100 percent, but more and more it's looking like that's always going to be there at the front end of flow so forget all the other stuff about you were talking about with patience and learning and the path to mastering—you're totally right. But also, if you want more flow in your life, you have to learn that that like frustration is literally built into the process. It's just part of how the biology works. It has to do with the fact that our working memory—the number of things that we can pay attention to consciously—is very limited. And to learn anything, you sort of want to overload working memory. Let the conscious mind pass that over into the unconscious. Let the unconscious learn the thing and then start over. That's sort of the process of learning kind of thing. And to maximize it, you want a lot of that energy and frustration is a lot of energy kind of thing. So it actually, it's useful. It just doesn't feel very good.
0: Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K through 12 tutoring and test prep franchise, dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the US, and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit huntingtonfranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit huntingtonfranchise.com today. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability, as well as its robust interior, are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. I like this concept that, you know, all of these things are designed basically to reduce energy use. So like, for instance, if you're passionate about something as opposed to not being passionate, it's less difficult to read a technical manual if you're passionate about what you're, the technology you're reading about you know, if you learn the psychology of dealing with frustration, it's going to require less energy to deal with being frustrated. So you could move again, closer to that flow state. So all these things, it's sort of like flow is, is achieved as a sort of reward for reducing energy expenditure each step of the way.
1: Well, let you let me actually, so let's take it one step farther. Cause it's actually you're right. And it goes one step further. And this is kind of crazy not only are sort of we hardwired to go big, right? That's sort of what we're talking about. The fact that all of us are sort of hardwired for the extraordinary and we, and we have this state and that you do all these things right and flow is sort of the benefit. But what the research shows is not going big, not sort of doing all these things in a row is really bad for us. Now, let me give you an example that you'll totally get. So there are eight major causes of depression. Two of them get the most attention, which is genetics, like you can't produce enough serotonin. Um, or trauma. But the other six are about screwing up things like passion, purpose, curiosity. For example, one of the biggest causes of depression in the world and anxiety is lack of meaningful work. What does a lack of meaningful work actually mean? It means a job that you're not curious about, you're not passionate about, it's not involved in your purpose You don't have the freedom, the autonomy to pursue the job. There's no mastery of skills on the job and it's not producing flow. That's what that means. Literally not going big is bad for us.
0: That's so interesting.
1: We've got overwhelming numbers of anxiety, depression, are the largest plagues in the modern world at this point. And six out of the eight causes of these things are literally not using your biology the way it's been designed to work. It's nothing like fancier than that. And it's not a genetic problem and it's not a trauma problem. It's literally like there's a system. It's our biology. is designed to work in a specific way. And if we don't use it that way, there's a huge penalty penalty for getting it right is a ton more flow and way better performance. The penalty for getting it wrong is we're miserable.
0: What about a situational thing like uh, the loss of a loved one or losing money or is, is that separate?
1: Yeah. Like trauma stuff, of course, And, you know, there's certain loss of a loved one. Let me explain it this way. You have something called emotional set points. They always say, if you're trying to get happier, good luck. Because there's only a few tools. You can use gratitude. You can use mindfulness. But Dan Harris wasn't wrong. We're built to get about 10% happier, and that's about it. You can get more meaning, more purpose, more life satisfaction, more well-being, more contentment. All that stuff is super available to you. But, like, how do you feel right here, right now, and the reason is when we're born and by the time we're about 9 years old we have what are known as emotional set points. You've got a low point and you have got a high point. And in between is your whole life. This is as bad as you're going to feel at planet. this is as good as you're going to feel. Life happens in between. There are the only way to increase the upper limit is more access to flow. It seems that greater and greater access to flow will actually you can get happier over time on the downside yeah, there's tragedy stuff, but what, what seems to be the absolute worst, meaning can make life feel worse, is death of a child and or chronic unemployment, and both have to do uh, with very basic safety and security concerns. Death of a child, is it, it carries all the emotional loss of right of, of a loved one, but it's also children from a biological perspective and an evolutionary perspective are sort of Retirement plans for people—they're who are going to take care of you in your old age. Mm. So, death of a child doesn't just bring up all the death of a loved one stuff. It brings up all this evolutionary—I'm going to get old and die, and who's going to have my back? Shit on top of it, and that seems to be what it is. And and chronic unemployment is sort of the same thing. It really shakes up the safety and security tree, right? Like just not being able to pay your bills—it's just truly terrifying, as you know.
0: I I wonder how much aiming for the experience of flow can counteract those types of depressions too, because I do feel that if you're chronically unemployed, but if you do spend some time being creative each day, you're going to bounce back faster. Yeah.
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You are going to, but yeah, you are. I, first of all, anything that is going to produce sort of dopamine is going to help there and create. I totally agree with you. I always say that like, when I, if I, if I trying to be really hardcore, I'll say to people, you know, my job is to turn pain into words and words into money. That's what I do. Right. And what I really mean is, my job is to take whatever powerful emotion is that I'm feeling, turn that into words and turn words into money. That's the job. That's what I do. I, I, one way or another, that's essentially what I've done my whole life to get paid. And, you know, I started with that emotion is still super useful. You know what I mean?
0: So, so uh, I'm going to ask you a question that is, may not be related to flow, but I hope it, it does. It it is. So I'm a somewhat introverted person. Like this is great. I could talk all day long on podcasts. One-on-one. I could play games all day long, but if I'm in a group situation, sometimes I freeze up. I can't everybody like, let's say a party, everyone's talking and I, I, I want to be able to talk and interact. I want to be in sort of a group flow with everyone where it's like, Oh yeah, I'm thinking of the, the best things and everyone's laughing and, and I'm, um, I don't um seem like I'm just a guy in the corner who can't speak. Like, is there, is there a flow of social interaction?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, there's a lot of it and there. Are, again, the 10 group flow triggers can be your friend there um, or some of them, but I'm an introvert too. And, I always say, so In the, the book opens with this idea, James, that personality doesn't scale. Biology is what scales, right? And the, the point there is you see this problem in, in, in peak performance and coaching and whatever. People figure out what works for them, and they teach it to other people. And they expect it to work for everybody else. And I, I always say this is like, don't do that. Personality doesn't scale. What works for me is not guaranteed to work for you. And one of the main reasons is certain things that are foundational to peak performance, like where do you stand on the introversion to extroversion scale are sort of biologically hardwired or set up by early childhood experience. And where you are on the introversion to extroversion scale will depend on how you approach pre-performance. I will tell you that social interactions are probably, you're just so far out of the challenge skills balance that like you would need to practice. If you want that, like you could have it, but we have to like de-escalate the whole thing, right? Because there's too much challenge. You're fighting against too much of yourself. And take, you know what I mean? I'd stage you into that. But I I have to tell you, as an introvert, I just think there are, like, if my energy is low, there is nothing I will be able to do in the world to fight back again. Like the combination of less energy and introversion, I'll, you know, I'm going to run out of the party. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to do that.
0: What if you're not allowed? Well, what if you're like at a party at the White House and you have to be uh, on your um, best?
1: Yeah, I, you know, in, in that case, I try to figure out where can I start? Like I need a gateway in, right? Because social interaction will produce dub if I'm totally locked out of a party, and with that social situation, I will sort of scan them and be like, who's the person I can talk to? If you're seated at a dinner party and you can't move and you're stuck, I don't know if I got any advice for you. I don't know if there's anything I could do here, but if you have some ability to move around the White House, I would find somebody where, you know, you can start small, get a little of dopamine, get a little oxytocin because it'll give you energy and dopamine um, increases focus. But as I said, their multi-tools one of the things it does is it amplifies pattern recognition our ability to link ideas together you said you wanted to be quick and funny and all that stuff Dopamine is very helpful with that stuff so i would look for you know easy cheap dopamine and if it was a make or break situation like you could always find an attractive member of the opposite sex to talk to because or the right sex, whatever you're attracted to um find somebody attractive to talk to because that produces a little bit of dopamine and it'll get you a little bit more into the game.
0: That's so funny. It's almost like it makes me think like, okay, let's say you want to talk to the most attractive person from the opposite sex, um, but you need a lot of dopamine for that. So like you go to someone who you're not intimidated by just to fill up on dopamine.
1: A little bit. And then, yeah, work your Uh, way up. I got enough dopamine here. I'm going to go over now. Exactly. I mean, I'm not saying this is a good thing to do from an ethical standpoint or any of those things. You just said, I'm in this situation. I have to be here. I got to make it work. It's the white house. It totally matters. I'm giving, I'm telling you how I would try to make it work. Um, and I would, you know, I would play. So the most important of group flows triggers, not the most important, but one of them is, is the yes, and game, right? Yes. And is the first rule of improv, which is always say yes. And right. You come up to me and you say, you know, Stephen, there's a blue elephant in the bathroom. If I say, well, shut up, James, that's not true. That goes nowhere. But if you're like, dude, I hope he's not using up the toilet paper. Well, now we've got the start of a skit, right? We could do something with it. And what that means is conversations to maximize group flow should be additive and not argumentative. But this doesn't mean, and we anybody who's familiar with brainstorming research is going to know, like when everybody's just additive and oh i like your idea and oh i like your idea you get group think you don't get creativity you don't get innovation it actually blocks good ideas so you want to be critical but also complimentary meaning like i could say james almost everything you just said i think is total nonsense and not applicable here but that one thing you said about the blah blah, blah that was freaking brilliant we should build on that that's right so that's that's an example from an organizational work environment but I would just play the yes and game. and I do it with people when I'm in a bad mood, um, I will try to do I like especially with with people like my mom, my wife, right? When I'm grumpy, I will specifically try to play this game because it's really it's it's real people love it, right? They light up. When you're affirmative and you're, you're taking what they're saying and you're building on it, that grabs hold of everybody's attention. It drives flow for people, right? That's the whole point.
0: So when you're in a grumpy mood and you're, what's an example with your wife, she starts talking to you and you're like, ah,
1: okay. So normally when I'm in a grumpy mood, everything is a no, right? Like she'll be like, what about, no, what about, you know? And and, and I catch myself and I'm like, no, the the goal is even, I want to say no to whatever it is that she's proposing. I force myself to be like, you know, most of that. I don't know if I agree with, but that one thing I love this, idea, and I and I'll find a way to do that. It's really like I'm not doing anything simple. I'm just literally work. This is how I. Your uh, these are situations. These are the things we're hardwired to naturally pay attention to, right? When somebody's building on our idea, that's a that's a good thing. Um, you have to remember, sort of like all this goes back to evolution, and. Everything we talk about when peak performance is evolution shaped human beings in response to one big driver, which is scarcity. Scarcity of resources, scarcity of mates, scarcity of whatever. And there's only two responses to scarcity. You can fight over dwindling resources, right? Or you can flee to avoid being somebody else's resources. Or you can get creative, get innovative, get cooperative, work together and make new resources. So we talk about the peak performance toolkit. In fact, we talk about what flow amplifies It amplifies all the stuff needed to fight or flee or get creative, get cooperative and make new resources. That's what human peak performance is sort of all about. It's using those same skills. So yes and is a game, you and I together are way more innovative. We could make, create more resources together than we usually can on our own. So if I'm playing yes and games with you, Right? The reason it's driving flow is because my brain suddenly knows that you and I together are more powerful, more cooperative, more innovative, and gonna solve challenges better than me solo. So it's driving focus.
0: You know, it probably was so much easier to get into flow 10,000 years ago when things actually were scarce. Like now we have all the food in the world. Tinder gives everybody all the options they want in every possible category. There's no more there's no more we have to sort of invent scarcity. like now in order to get flow, I have to ride a 50-foot wave or you know climb a mountain or or pl- play in an orchestra or something. like there's no, there's no simple scarcity anymore. I have to find like, oh the world is scarce in master violinists. And so now I, that's the only way I can get into flow. Uh, I think that
1: may be true for you. I don't think that's true for everybody. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure that's true for everybody. Meaning. And you know, it's that? you still get into flow when you play chess. You still oh, yeah, get into flow when you write. You still write.
0: Like, I mean. Because it's hard, but like, but like 10,000 years ago, all I needed to do was find a great oh, yeah. probably. Yeah. And I, I mean, <laughs> yeah.
1: 10,000 years ago, like you walked outside and everything wanted to kill
0: you. Yeah. If I just live, right? I got into flow. Like, Oh man, that was great.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's also another, um, it's one of the, we were designed to function in an era of immediacy, right? You you remember Peter and I wrote about this in abundance, like our brain is built for tiger in the bush kind of problems. We're not, for example, one of the reasons we have so much anxiety in the modern world is we are not built to handle probabilistic dangers. The economy might nosedive, terrorists might attack, right? The brain lives in an era of immediate danger, so it doesn't shut off the threat level, the threat signals until the danger has vanished completely. The tiger goes away, right? I'm safe again. But probabilistic dangers, the economy might nosedive every motherfucking day. Like that never goes away, right? Especially if you don't like who's in office. You know what I mean? If if the you know, the current regime isn't your, isn't your cup of tea, then you're going to spend four years worrying about the economy kind of thing. That's a probabilistic danger. And the truth of the matter is most of us are sort of a little bit hyper vigilant, right? That's extreme anxiety. We're a little hyper vigilant because of these probabilistic dangers. This is the other reason things like gratitude, mindfulness, and exercise matter so much is to counteract that that very
0: thing. That's what's great about this book, uh, *The Art of Impossible*, is that you talk a lot about flow and the triggers for flow and why it's important and why it's a great experience to have. And, and I like what you just described here too, how it's kind of the opposite conditions of depression as well. But there's all this foundational stuff, like, you know, setting the stage so that you're not distracted by anxiety, for instance, doing, you know, mindfulness or gratitude. And then there's the, the aspect of, of learning and all the skills of building a skill so you can get to the point where you have mastery and then can start experiencing flow and, you kind of create a narrative of how to get into flow, starting from the, the basics and the foundations and how do you find your passion? And then, and then how do you layer in these, these flow triggers while you're doing an activity? Again, I'll say it again. This, this is the book I've been wanting you to write ever since you first mentioned the word flow to me, this book, everybody should read and reread and reread again, by the way, all the authors you've mentioned in the book, have been on the podcast because they're all pieces of this puzzle. Again, that's why I appreciate this book, The Art of Impossible by Stephen Kotler. And thanks once again for, I think you've been on the podcast more than just about anybody else, actually.
1: Thank you, James. That's a thrill. That's exciting. I'm honored.
0: Yeah, because you, you, you've you been on for Rise of Superman, this book, uh, and then with Peter.
1: And, and faster, so that's four that I can think of. Did we do Abundance?
0: When Bold came out, I think we did Abundance and Bold. And Bold, you're right. Because I think you're Abundance... Right. So that's
1: five. Was I on for Tomorrowland?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think I was on for Tomorrowland six? too. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that's amazing. I'm honored. Thank you, James. So thank you for all the support.
0: Yeah, thank you once again. And, and uh, look, I'm probably going to have to go to your institute and get trained in flow so I can tackle my next big task that I want to tackle.
1: And I told you, let me get through this book tour and come back to me and let's do some comedy, improv comedy flow kind of research thing together. That'd be super fun. I like that.
0: Yeah, my next book actually coming out in February is a little it's called Skip the Line and it's a little bit about how you can improve in such a way that you could even monetize as quickly as possible using some of these techniques that I learned using learning these harder skills like like comedy or you know, what business or some of these things that I wasn't a natural at. So How often do you uh, bomb?
1: I just gotta ask now now I get three questions with James Alton. Sure.
0: James, how often do you bomb? I would say in the beginning, uh, about seventy five percent of the time, maybe even more. And now, uh, not that much because usually I have I have a lot of methods to recover. So if I sense I'm losing part of the audience, there's part yeah. there's things you can do. Or if just something's not going right, or if you miss some timing, there's things you can pull yourself. So I, I haven't been I haven't been heckled in a really long time. Bombing is even worse though, because that's when there's just silence. And I can't. <laughs> maybe it's been um. When I was in the Netherlands, okay. I bombed. Well, I, <laughs> well, I bombed at least yeah. once yeah. in the Netherlands. Yes, yeah,
1: through the language, through the language barrier. I think you get to get, get a. I don't even know if that counts. Um. All right. So um, when you were bombing, because this is always the thing that blows my mind is, since ninety percent of communication is nonverbal. I've done so many things on stage where I think it's the language. I'm a writer. I think I'm saying things wrong. And in fact, it's my tone or my gestures that are wrong. How long did it take you to figure out? And how do you figure out is it the words and the joke itself, or is it the way you're presenting the joke?
0: It's always the way you're presenting it because. Is it- If you tell like a Jerry, let's say you were to tell a Jerry Seinfeld joke and not use his timing and delivery. It wouldn't be funny, even though it was an interesting concept, like, oh, I don't want, you know, he has a joke where it's like, everybody says your money should work for you. Um, but I I don't know where that money's been. Maybe my money should relax and I'll do the work. And he has a specific way of telling (laughs) it. That's very Seinfeld esque that, you know, me just telling it now is not as, as interesting and it's almost all likability, delivery, you know, a lot of times if I feel like something's going wrong, I'll quickly ask myself, are my shoulders tense? And I'll relax my shoulders. And one instinct people do when they're, when they feel they're bombing is they start talking faster because they want to get to that next laugh as quickly as possible. But almost every instinct you have when you're anxious in the moment, you should do the reverse. So you should actually start talking slower and instead of like moving forward, you, or your body almost shrinks, like your shoulders tense up, and you're, you're 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 standing in one place. You should just like expand, almost in this Amy Cuddy way, you know, for, as she describes it in her TED talk, and maybe lean back against the wall, like just what whatever you're doing, you're the one on stage, so you have to get back into the mindset that they have the pleasure of watching you and not the other way around. So you have to kind of show that you're expansive and relaxed and you don't care and then you'll start to recover.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh one of my I have a tell. When I'm uncomfortable, I do one thing and uh I didn't know, I mean I've been doing it for years. I didn't my best friend pointed it. He's like, "Dude, when you're scared, you put your hand on your stomach." as if somebody's about to sucker punch you and you just mm. do, do And so he pointed it out and I realized it. So now, as soon as I find myself doing that, anytime, my next gesture is arms wide, exactly as you said, just because I know like protecting yourself on stage, like people know what you're doing. They sense the fact that you're folding up and trying to protect yourself. And, I, and they don't respond well to it, I think. I agree with you
0: they're an x-ray machine that you can't hide it from them, that you're, that you're nervous. So you have to, you have to do these things like relax, be expansive. The other thing is you have to call out the elephant in the room. You're there. They know that the room is silent, just like, you know, that the room is silent. Right. So, guess. so you could say something like, Hey, everybody, thanks for coming to my Ted talk and, uh, you know, start to build from scratch. Like call out that this was as funny as a Ted talk and then start from there and then, and they'll get it. They'll, they want you to succeed because they bought tickets so if you just call it out and then move forward, then that that's usually that's usually okay. But these are these are skills that you don't have for the first year or so or more. Uh, you have to it takes practice. Okay,
1: so the, here's the other final question for James. I guess I knew this. You were doing comedy. I think we talked about it last time I was with you, and I should have done this afterwards. Can I see you doing stand up online? Is there anything out there?
0: No, did in fact, like? I, I did once or twice put something, and then I pulled it down because I was. I was studying and doing this so much, like literally this was all consuming for, for years while I was doing podcasts and other things. But, uh, I felt like there was an exponential curve to my growth. So I would look at something I did two months ago and I'm like, Oh, I can't believe I thought that was good. And then, so I'm <clears throat> still on that curve to some extent Got Got and, it. uh, haven't felt, haven't felt like it's stopping yet. Sometimes I would put experiments on online. Like one time I did comedy in a subway just to sort of practice doing comedy in front of a hostile audience another time i was trying some some <laughs> how it, was that it was how it was, was scary that's
1: brave as shit
0: and i and i will wow. say i I bombed but that was the whole point was to get comfortable with that and then another experiment i did was i did a whole five minutes where i played the air piano so there was uh the song um great balls of fire by by J lee lewis it has a lot of like you know, he's yeah. a lot of flourishes in the piano. So I just did I I pretended I had a piano in front of me and would do all these flourishes on the piano in totally in sync with the song, like while the song was playing, but I wasn't saying anything. And it was and it bombed horribly, but I thought it was really funny. And I put that online, but then I decided to take it down. All
1: right. So you gotta let me know the next time you are proud of something and comes out online because I wanna see it.
0: All right. Definitely. And, and Steven, thanks once again. And, uh, looking forward to the the next book or when you're uh, right now, I'm in the Miami area. So let me know if your book tour takes you here. I will.
1: Um, right now my book tour is, 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 is COVID-ed out. So it's not taking me anywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's the drag right now, but that, that means you get to just stay home and do podcasts. It is,
1: yeah, I, it, it, it is true. It's, I think it's actually going to be, I think I'm going to end up talking to more people cause I don't have to, Right. If I normally I'd have to come to New York to hang out with you and then I have to go, you know, now I can actually do it from my office, which is great. Yeah. Anyways, thank you again. I appreciate it.
0: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.